Are we doing this? Really? Wait for it. Are we doing this? Wait for it. How? What the fuck? WTF. And it's also, eh, what the fuck? What's wrong with me? It's time for WTF. What the fuck? With Mark Marin. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fuckers? What the fuck? Ah, oh, fuck it. What the fuck, Amalans? What the fuck, Canadians? What the fuck, Anucks? That's the same thing. Hey, look, I can't do it all day. I can't do it all day. I am Mark Marin. This is WTF. Welcome to the show. I'm out in the garage. It's hot as fuck. Where's the fall? Oh, I remember. I live in Los Angeles. There's no fall. I think we had fall for about an hour the other day. I have to go to uh, get my prostate checked. Looking forward to that. That once a year thing. Yeah, that's going to be fun. You know, if you just keep it once a year, it's not, you know, it's clinical. So if, you know, if you enjoy it, it's not really a negative thing. I'm not going to enjoy it. I'm freaking out. As I get older, I can't, I can't think of, I don't like hearing about kidneys or prostates or livers or pancreases going bad. I, as I get older, I want to be in denial that all those things have their own jobs and some of them can crap out on their jobs and that's what leads to the end of things for you. All things stop for you because one of your organs craps out unless someone can give you an organ, like a kidney. Breaking Bad, after Cranston last week, uh, I was amped. I could not wait. I had to do everything I could to not email my one contact at AMC to send me a screener as if he would. I waited like everyone else because I'm just a normal guy. I am. Yeah, stop with the the assumptions that maybe I'm happy or that maybe that uh, I'm losing my edge or I don't feel you know uh, vital to you because I'm not as fucking worked up. Believe me. Believe me, I'm fucking worked up. It's just after a certain point, I can't be complaining about bullshit. I mean, things are going okay. I can't be doing what I did in San Francisco the other day at a restaurant after I did a show, woke up, needed to get the uh, get to Oakland Airport, wanted to get some breakfast. I'm on a little bit of a fucked up diet right now. I'm on this slow carbs thing, this four-hour body thing, or my version of it, and it you can only eat a certain way. So I go into a restaurant. Uh, they take my order. I say, I want an egg white omelet with just vegetables. All right, so give me this omelet, the California omelet. It's got vegetables, avocado in it, no cheese, egg whites. Nothing else on the plate, please. No potatoes, no fruit. Thank you. So then another person comes over and I tell and, and takes my order again. I tell the same thing. A California omelet, egg whites, uh, nothing on the plate but that. Okay? No cheese. I told that to two people. I waited 20 minutes. I got to get a car to get a plane. They bring out the omelet. I cut into it. There's cheese in it. So as opposed to just going, oh, uh, you know, I guess the chef wasn't paying attention. Could you make another one? I stood up and go, how much for my drink? How much for my drink? And they said, you can have it. I'm like, all right. I told two people. I What the fuck is wrong with me? Like, can't I stop that? You know, I, I can't be that guy. You know, I can do that in my head. So then I, I tried to make it okay in my mind. I, you know, of course, I was like, wow, the service industry is really the only industry we have left in this country because we don't make anything here anymore. And that's why we're having trouble. One of many reasons outside of the, you know, financial collapse done by a bunch of crooks. But the fact is, all we have is a service industry. So we don't make anything here but eggs. And we also manufacture, you know, need and appetite. 
you know, exploit desires in order for us to buy things, make us all feel a little off so we can buy things and eat eggs. But I wanted my eggs the way I wanted them. And you would think that this is where my brain goes. This is a, you know, this is a, uh, this is a, a job that people do. I just didn't want cheese. It wasn't a crowded restaurant, but I didn't judge. I tried not to, but I did throw a little bit of a shit fit and walked out of the restaurant. Fine. Okay. I felt bad about it. So I go, I go down to the street carrying that load of baggage. I carry my, my anger baggage from the uh, egg debacle up the street down to another restaurant down, you know, uh, that's a little further down the street. I ordered the same. I ordered an omelet. I said egg whites, just vegetables, side of steamed vegetables. Okay. I waited 15 minutes that time. Again, not a very full restaurant. I've made omelets before. It doesn't take 15 minutes, whatever. Guy brings it out. It's yellow. And I thought maybe they're egg beaters. So I said, is that egg whites? And he goes, oh no, you wanted egg whites? And I'm like, you got to be fucking kidding me. Out loud, I said, and put my head in my hands. And the guy was shocked. He's like, I'll, I'll, I'll get egg whites. Like I brought all that baggage from the restaurant that I went to before and from my entire life into that counter at that restaurant and made and made that guy feel bad. And then he brought me the omelet. I said, I'm sorry. I, there was an incident earlier that involved a similar situation. I apologize. So I apologized. Oh, I'm sorry. Breaking Bad. I was very satisfied with the finale. I was I was completely sated. I do not like the fact that I have to wait what a fucking year for the next ones. That that that's a new trend in television where we we are okay with waiting almost a year to pick up where we left off. I want it now. I want them to shoot them now. I want it to continue on forever. I'd like it to be on every other day if possible. How about they do it in uh, coinciding with my show? Maybe twice a week, new episodes from Breaking Bad. I know you can't do it that fast, but. I thought it was spectacular. Some people are asking me where I stand on the Occupy Wall Street thing. I stand for it. Do it. You know, get the message together. It's not a political message. A lot of people out of work, a lot of cooked books, a lot of bad money, a lot of big problems, money people taking away everything, taking away our livelihoods and our opportunities. I'm, I'm completely behind it. Am I going down there? No, I have not gone down there. I'm trying to do what I can you know, here at the house to occupy Wall Street here at home. It's doable. It's fucking doable. I hear I'll, I'll give you an example of what I did. Uh, first, first thing I did was set up my tent down, uh, you know, down below, down a little uh, down, lower down on my small piece of property. The tent is there. I've got some signs made uh, that, you know, that said, you know, you know, fuck the bankers. Um we are the you know, we are the ninety nine percent. I have that one. Uh, I have. Um, I'm against everything in my house that was made by a corporation that is on the the stock exchange that doesn't treat people well. That's a long sign, and uh, I haven't really held that one up yet. My neighbors are already having a hard time with what I'm doing, but I tell them that you know everybody should be doing something. I wrote my cousin who is a, a stockbroker who I really haven't talked to since we were probably 14. Uh, here, I'll just read what I wrote. Neil, how's it going? It's been a while since we played guitar at my grandma Goldie's house. Uh, give us our country back and kill yourself. You still play Mark. So that's something. Uh, I've begun to walk around my house and actually uh, verbally abuse things that uh, I own that are made by questionable corporations that's that's become a chore. It's a lot more difficult than I thought it would be. 
uh, I'm working towards just standing on the street in front of my house and saying, fuck you, fuck you, and everything that's in you for exploiting the workers and for bankrupting the country with the people that, that make you and the people that pull their strings and the politicians that defend them and lobby for them at, at, at the demise of working people in this country. So later today, I'm going to yell that at my house. There's a few things I need that are made by these corporations, so I can't throw that shit away. Maybe I'll move it outside, like you put bread outside uh, over Passover if you don't want to throw it away. So that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to do my part and support. Did I mention that um, Jack Gallagher is on the show today? Jack Gallagher is a great comic. He was a comic in Boston. He's been in some TV shows. He's very smooth. He's, uh, you know, he's uh, the generation just uh, ahead of me. Uh, but I never really sat down and talked to him. You've seen him on Curb Your Enthusiasm. He plays the doctor. But I had a very interesting chat with Jack about about his life and and what it's like to uh, to raise a, a son with autism. He's got two sons, and you know he's done some uh, some videos. Uh, a different kind of cool is uh, one of the Jack Gallagher videos about his son who does have autism. So that that's a that this is a new sort of area for us. Hold on a minute. The phone company's bad, right? I mean, they, they're shitty, aren't they? Hold on, I'm gonna, let me just do this to my phone. Fuck you. Fuck you. And whoever made this phone in China, no American workers, and, and for bankrupting the country. Fuck, fuck you. All right, let's talk to Jack Gallagher. I don't like, you know, it's weird as busy as I am, I don't, uh, I don't love it. I don't, <laughs> don't love what? Being busy. I, there was a time as, as a comic, and I'm sure you know it, that uh, you could sit for a whole day and oh, yeah. not have anything to do. Oh, yeah, and that didn't bother me at all. <laughs> it, it was good. No, kids get in the way of that, though. <laughs> I bet. Yeah, big, I, in a big way. I don't, uh, <laughs> you know what the funny thing is? After mm. the kids get older and you start having time again, yeah. it's like my wife and I started dating again. Oh, my God. It's like, oh, we can go out and, and, and the kids aren't around and, and, and they can take care of themselves. And, are and you, you forget how to be uh, like uh, lovers and friends because you're parents for so long. I, now, are you finding that that, uh, that process is going well? Oh, I it's mean, going great. I love my wife. She's <laughs> my best friend. That's 31 good. years uh, in August we've been married. I, well, that's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. Considering it's, a, it's she's married to me, the same, this, <laughs> the same one the whole time. I do a joke in my act. I've yeah. been married for thirty-one years, and people applaud, and then I say, "Well, it's a total of three women, thirty-one <laughs> years." But no, same woman, thirty-one. <laughs> We've been together for thirty-five years. That's old school, man. Known her more than half my life, and we've grown up together. I mean, she's she's unbelievable. I mean, I can't say enough good things about her. That's she's, she's put up with so much crap from me. Yeah, I I imagine. I I mean, you, you know, you seem like a, a a good guy, but I know that with a name like Gallagher, and I'm not going to walk out on you. No, I know. You, let's make it <laughs> the clear. The bane of my existence has you, been that last name. You're not you're not him. related in any way no, to not. him, but you do have some. I'm imagining Irish roots somewhere. One time, the only two times we've been one time we've been connected was. The first one-man show I wrote, a thing called Letters to Declan. Mm-hmm. Um, I did it down at the Brea Improv, and he was at Knott's Berry Farm. Uh-huh. And we got reviewed in the same article, and the oh. headline was, Two Gallagher's, one's a fool, one's a philosopher. 
Oh my God. And I was the philosopher. Thank God. And it had just been years of people saying, do you smash watermelons? Oh Have my. you seen that guy? He's Come bald, on. he's short. Yeah, Could we be any different? You actually got that or did you Oh, get, I got that for years. Or like, did you get the, uh, are you the brother? Are you the... Are you oh, the, I get any combination of Gallagher. Oh, or this is the other thing. People will say, what's your last name? Gallagher. Oh, like the comedian. And then I don't, I don't say, uh, well, I'm a but comedian. But on another level, isn't Gallagher like Smith in Ireland? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a very common name. It's but a classic it, but there's Irish only name. two of us in comedy. Oh. So, but it's all right, man. I mean, I could have changed it, but you know, I, used to I get you mixed up pride. with... Uh, who was you? I never got you mixed up with Gallagher, but you know, I mean, yes, having started in Boston when I was very young and gone to... Uh, college in Boston, started comedy in Boston, you, I, I think, were already gone. And all that was left was a, a promotional headshot. And I think I remember it. I think you had your, your you were standing and you had your leg crossed or yeah. something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that I possible? That. I remember that shot. Yeah, it was actually one of my first headshots. Some guy said, do something goofy. So I, I think I, I haven't seen that in a long time. I think I actually like was holding my leg up right. with my hand or something. Right, and I remember that's, yes. uh, that guy. And, yeah. uh, and by that time, you had left. And you were orders. You, you weren't like old guard, but you were like a guy that got out. Do you uh, know what? You I've... seemed like a grown up to me when I was starting <laughs> out. That that guy somehow grew up and left. I remember Dana Gould uh, was impressed with you. That you had a great. Dana reputation. Gould was impressed with very much with me at the beginning. Very very much with me at the beginning. What, what does that mean? Uh, <laughs> Dana Gould was doing you a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, little, he was like, what was he? Twelve when yeah. he started. So I he met was... him at the University of Massachusetts. He was going to school there. I did a gig, and after I came off stage, he came up to me and said, "I want to do just what you do. Uh -huh. I want to do this." And uh -huh. I said, "Well, good for you." And he was very excited. And then he came to Boston, and and there was a bit of an overlap for a time between our styles. But he was like sixteen. Yeah, he was very. Hey, look at I mean, him. Hey, I think he's a funny guy. I respect him, and my people say to me, "He's doing you." He's, he's doing you. Still? Said, no, 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 oh, yeah, no, no. Yeah, sure. Way, way, way back sure. when he was starting. But my thing is, look, when you play baseball, you copy somebody's swing. You yeah. play golf. You, you, you sing. You copy a sing. So if you like someone, and I'm not saying that he does that. No, I call it a drive shaft. That, yeah, you know, yeah. you, you, there's a delivery system right. that, uh, that is contagious. Uh, I think Dane Cook would call it the essence, <laughs> which I, I think is a little deeper and more philosophical. But, but there is something, even if you read somebody... Uh, sure. Someone's books and then sure, you write. Sure, absolutely. But it usually goes away. But I think he and, was... Uh, and he, ha he was searching and, and he's, he's very funny and he's well beyond doing me at this point. You know, he's a, he's a brilliant guy yep. and he certainly has got a tremendous amount of balls in terms of uh, what he'll talk about on stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I watched Robert Klein and there was a, you know, the elements... Dana was one of those guys who I think was so impressed with Carlin, with you and, you know, I mean, but like, where did you come from? And do you come from one of these majorly huge Irish families? I, I came mean, from a pretty, there were five kids. That's a lot. You know, uh, three older sisters and a younger yeah. brother. And, and I grew up in a really tiny town uh, south of Boston called West Bridgewater. Oh, uh, you know, Bridgewater is a prison there, right? Yeah, my wife's from Bridgewater. I thought you were going to say my I'm wife I'm from West Bridgewater. Okay, all Completely right. different towns. Yeah. Uh, but tiny, you know, graduating class of 90 kids. Uh, 5,000 people in the town. Now, who was your guys? I mean, like, I can't even picture. So you started doing comedy in what, the late 70s, early 80s? started doing comedy at the University of Massachusetts when I was going out there to get my teaching degree. Then I moved to Boston and started doing it. I'm like the guy from Boston who was part of that original crowd who nobody knows. Lenny Clark, Don Gavin, Steve Sweeney, Stephen Wright, Bobby Goldthwait. I was there for a long time. George McDonald. George Warren McDonald. The Billy Campbell. McDonald brothers. Tom Bill Gilmore. Bill Campbell's the guy who used to Campbell. think get you confused with for some uh, reason. Well, he's a smart guy, funny guy. But, but uh, Tony V from Tony. Boston says to me all the time, when anybody talks about Boston, I bring your name up. 
because nobody, you know, Boston Comics. Dennis Leary does this Boston Comics come home every year. I've never been invited to come home once. Yeah. It's, it's guys from would New you, York. Would you and, want to come home? I don't know, but I'd like people to know that I was there. I was part of that original group. Stephen Wright and I did open mic night the first night together. The Ding Ho? Uh, no, Comedy Connection on Warrant. Yeah, the little one. Yeah. Billy Downs. Place. Yeah, yeah, Billy and Paul. Yeah. Uh, what's his name? Paul Barkley. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was there for all that. What year was that? 79. So that was the original crew. Kenny yeah. Rogerson. Kenny Rogerson, Kevin Meany, Lenny. Paula Gavin, Poundstone. Paula was there for a short time. Then Goldthwaite came. Then Tommy. Uh, Tom Kenny. Tom Kenny showed up. And Dan. Uh, Spencer. Dan Spencer. And those yeah. guys, Paul Kozlowski showed up. So that was kind of the second wave. But yeah. I was part of that very first wave of doing the Ding Ho, uh, Stitches, Comedy Connection. I, I started a lot of those rooms. Wow, because I think I must have been the third wave then. I remember you coming, and I, re- I have this really funny memory of you I, that I, I associate with. You I, have I, one, I have one with you, too, I think. You and I worked at Catch a Rising Star together in Harvard Square. I middled for you? or You featured? Middled. I, yeah, oh, I, you middled. I, I didn't me. open it. It wasn't a hosting? No, I don't think so. Okay. I think you middled. Oh, but boy. I remember being struck by, wow, this guy's really smart. And yeah. you reminded me of Crimmins. Right. Because you had that kind of Crimmins yeah, kind anger of, and, yeah. well, you were smart, you political stuff, and I was talking about my dog yeah, peeing yeah. on my leg, yeah. you know, I was, yeah. but I have this visual of you that I, it's this strange association. I remember standing outside Catch, and I think it was downstairs, Yeah, but I remember you like bolting upstairs onto the sidewalk yeah. of Harvard Square, yeah. Yeah. and just like presenting yourself, <laughs> and, and talking to you, and I had read this liner note this is such a weird thing but i had read this liner note yeah. about the love and spoonful about this guy interviewing zal yanovsky mm-hmm. who was the guitarist for the love and spoonful right and him bombing out of his apartment and showing up on the sidewalk and just saying what do you need <laughs> and and i associate you with that for some reason and i look like john sebastian you so do it kinda, it kinda... Yeah, it's, it's a cyclical kind of thing well i think that must be where my memory comes from because i always thought like you know you had you know, like i literally had this image like oh my god I'm working with my dad. <laughs> they, I better like. I, don't, I feel like I'm being judged in a parental way here. And I, I didn't do that though, did I? No, no. But you, you were you were clean. You know, you you, you had a life. Yeah, you were true. talking was, about a life that I was you had. Married by then. You know, and yeah. we, you know, I was probably sleeping on a floor. You know, and living out of boxes. But uh, yeah, so that whole Boston scene. But why you must have left pretty quickly? And I can understand that. I you know I get a little flack for. For being down on Boston, but there's something about Boston. If you're there for like five or seven years, you go, you stay. Wears on you though. And and there are guys who stayed, who oh, are hysterical guys, funny guys. Mike Donovan, one of the funniest guys. I've Mike ever Donovan, met. sure. Yeah, that's a good point. Mike Donovan, Gavin's probably still around. Yeah. he was hilarious. Sweeney's still around. Yanetti, which is fine. Yanetti was part of my crew. Yeah, yeah those were like around. the second wave. Was those? But when guys. did you leave? I mean, like I started doing colleges. See, I grew up in this Irish Catholic family where the it was this work ethic was you go to work right and and my parents especially my dad never considered comedy to be work work it was a hobby till yeah. i did the first tonight show right and after i did the tonight show the first time he was all over it how many years were you in not long i did the tonight show i think five years after i started doing it full time and they booked you out of boston no i was living in la i'd moved to la and uh, was living in LA and I auditioned a bunch of times. It was Jim McCauley at the time. And right. I auditioned like five times before they accepted me. And it went well? It went great. I didn't get to the couch, but I got the okay. Yeah, thumbs up. And the best compliment, seriously, in my career was Danny Robinson was my agent. He was a big guy. Yeah. His dad was. Was that APA? Yeah. Yeah. His dad was uh, Doc Severinsen's manager. 
Uh-huh. So Doc Severinsen calls Danny's dad, Bud. Danny calls me to tell me that the day after I did the Tonight Show shot, Carson's doing one of my jokes around the office. Oh, I shit. I had imitated this poodle being nervous. Yeah. And Danny calls me and says, Carson's doing the nervous poodle to everybody. I was like, holy <laughs> shit, you are kidding me. That was fucking, I could have I stopped right there. Yeah, you were like, I mean, so then yeah. what happens? Then I did the second shot and died. <laughs> did you really die? I didn't do well. I didn't get invited back. And it's a long, long story. And I talk about it in one of the plays I've written. But I just didn't, it was my fault. It was their fault. Macaulay called me and said, you want to do another one? They loved you. How soon after? Uh, it was soon. It was like two months three months really yeah it was like right away huh. and i was like why and i and i thought i had done so well the first time i was like why didn't they call me what the fuck Come right on, i killed they need me yeah uh i've been really sick i mean i'm making excuses but i've been really sick and uh i shouldn't have done it I, I shouldn't have done it but i didn't want to cancel and macaulay called me and said come on in we'll go over the set yeah and i said okay and then he said you know what you did so well the first time you'll do fine get Ooh. five minutes and just go yeah and i did and, and it went okay but yeah. it wasn't as good as uh, the first time, and I the next time I did it was with Leno, so it took years, you know. And it really? was it was crushing. It was not a good. It's time. not a good feeling when you're on doing that five minute set, and you know you're you just know because like when you do comedy yeah. long enough, you know okay that's their level. Yeah, yeah. That yeah, I'm not. Gonna, I'm not getting above that not, level. <laughs> can't break the ceiling. And it was about two minutes in, and I thought, holy shit! And then it gets in your head. Yeah. And you're like, shit, I got to fix this. I got to yeah. fix it. And I couldn't fix it. And see? the first time I did it, I look over at Carson afterwards yeah. and he's giving me the okay. Yeah. And I was on cloud nine. Yeah. And then the second time I did it, I look over at Carson and he's looking at the producer like, what's next? What do we got? What's going on? Oh, and I was, no. just, I, I was just crushed. So, okay. But like going back to Boston, because I think it's interesting that you, 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 you definitely like, you have a regional disposition. Yeah. You, you're Irish and you do, yeah. you know, you have Boston in you. And I grew up doing that stuff with those guys, that group of Irish Catholic guys yeah. who, who were doing stand-up. Right. It was a great time. Everybody was friendly well, and supportive and cooperative. And Well, I think a lot of people don't realize that. And I, I think I've talked about it a bit, but I haven't, I'm trying to remember if I've really interviewed, you know, anybody that was of that. Because I, when I came in, you were dealing with that. You were dealing with the Clark brothers. You know, there was Mike who booked, and there was Lenny. You were dealing with George McDonald, Don right. Gavin, Sweeney. Right. You were working with these guys, right. Kenny Rogerson. I, you know, when I started, it was one nighters. I, you'd go out, I'd do a half hour, then you'd do forty five right. at some place like this hotel we're at right now. Put a mic up in the corner, sure. be out by the pool. Yeah, you know, why Absolutely. not? We'll try it. Absolutely. And it was booked by subcontractors. But I was talking about it with someone today. The the girl who's working for me had gone to Boston, mm -hmm. and she'd gone to this. Uh, uh, Rick Jenkins is uh, operating a room. He, he was of my generation, the comedy studio, which is the alt comedy haven. Oh, I remember that comedy studio. I remember well, hearing about it, it. Yeah, it's upstairs at the fucking Hong Kong yeah. in, in Harvard Square. In Harvard Square. I remember, I've never been there, but I remember people talking but, about but it. But she said, are there other comedy rooms? And I'm saying, Jesus, this, you know, Boston was a powerhouse of comedy. Yeah, it, was it was regional, it was provincial, but there were definitely, you know, there was Nick's, there was the Comedy Connection, Catch a Rising Star came later, and I think that was even, you know, that was looked at as sort of highbrow by uh, yeah. the, the local comics. Yeah, there was uh, uh, Sam's, Played Against Sam's. Played Against Sam's in the basement, Stitches. Barry Katz's place, in, in Stitches, the original Stitches, which was green and in the front of the uh, Paradise Rock yeah. Club, and yeah, then yeah. it moved to some sort of weird demonic vortex. Oh, is that right? From, well, it moved to the old Ark, which was on Beacon Street, across oh, from yeah. Fathers Two, oh, yeah. just shy of Kenmore Square. Which was this? There was oh, something was wrong gone. with that. It was, was built gone. over an energy that was bad. Uh, no, see, after, at a certain point in Boston, you could do, you could work four shows a night in four right. different places and right. make a ton of cash. Right. You know, and a lot of that was due to Crimmins. Crimmins started that. He did. Oh yeah, 
Because when we were starting, you were working the Comedy Connection, they pay you 10 bucks. He's one of the great unsung heroes of political comedy. He's unbelievable. He, and I remember seeing him, and he used to do, uh, you know, at the, every, you know, ten, you know, usually 10 minutes into his set, he would you know, be exasperated. Yep. He would break down and say, okay, there are three branches of government. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know? People would be looking at him, a drool coming out of the size of He was mouth. a brilliant Smart guy. guy, knew, just, I mean, he used to intimidate me because in Boston, at the beginning, there was no open middle headliner. Right. You just went on. That's right. And you'd have to follow, you know, my first month into work and I had to follow Lenny Clark. So you got good fast or you Clark. didn't work. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Or yeah. Gavin or Sweeney or whomever had been they working really for a long fast. time. They were really fast. Well, I mean, Gavin and, and Clark were fast. Yeah. And you'd go up after them and the crowd would be like, who are you? What the fuck? You got nothing. You got, you got to get right into that pace. You and you've got to do it or you stopped working. So yeah. it was an education. And, and Crimmins was the guy who started paying people more money. And the money just started going up and up and up and up until you could make 150 bucks a set. That's right. You know? Yeah, so you can make six, 700 bucks a night if you got in cabs and went to Stitches. Then you go back to the Ding. Then you go to Plate Against Sam's. Then you go to the Connection for the Late Show. And you just cab it around town and, pop, and then pop And in. then maybe on the next night you drive out to Weymouth and you, you go do to a Worcester. Yeah, Worcester. Out to, uh, there was some place in Worcester. There Margarita was a restaurant that was a, had a hole in the middle of the room, and I remember one time Steve Wright and I went out to do it. And on the way, we bought those little plastic guys with the uh, uh, parachutes. Yeah. And during the show, we throw them over the thing, and they'd go down into the restaurant. <laughs> it was just, there was a hole. There in was the a hole in the middle of the room. You'd stand at one end. There's a giant fucking hole with people standing around it, and you had to do comedy to the hole. You just talk to the hole. I and mean, then maybe people on the side would hear something. But it was 50 bucks. And it was 45 minutes away. Yeah, what the hell? You're going to make 50 bucks. You so needed you, one of those a month to make your nuts. So you're doing, car, you're doing one-nighters with uh, Stephen Wright? Yeah. And how did, now, like, when you were working with him now, because you couldn't be more opposite. Right. And, and, and you talk about real life. You, talk, you do story format. And this is this, you know, this abstract dude who had one speed. Right. Because I, like, I remember working with Hedberg and with guys like that. Yeah, it could go or it couldn't. Right. And what was your experience with him? Well, when it worked, it worked great. And it worked 99% of the time mm -hmm. because he was so off the wall. Yeah. And Stephen and I, he's still one of the people that I keep in touch with. Yeah. And we got along great. He came to my wedding. We, we were really good buddies, really good friends. Well, I think a lot of people just associate him with that pace, but he's actually a, oh, he's you know, a, good he's guy. a New England guy. Yeah. Us, I know. mean, the pace is pretty much that <laughs> off stage. I mean, he's, you're not, he's not, I don't think I've seen him run. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, he's just a good, solid guy. So now, I guess the big question is, in, in terms of your early career, I mean, there was that sense, there, there was a, like, there was, I think there was a, a, a pull of the, the local industry to keep comics in town. Yeah. There was also a pull of, uh, you, know, you know, shadier figures within that industry yeah. to, uh, to harness that talent and then to run them into Vegas or to manage them out of Boston. But it took a sort of a certain amount of balls and wherewithal to say, you know, I got to get the fuck out of here. Yeah, well, I, st I got an agent in in L.A. in New York. Okay, uh, APA Lou right, Viola. Right, Lou, I just you know saw Lou? him. Sure, yeah. he's still, still he, he shows up places. Just like, saw what him are you doing now. Like, yeah, hey, you know. Just saw him the other. My family went on vacation to New York. We had dinner with him and his girlfriend, and uh -huh. still a really good friend of mine. Yeah, he's a nice guy. He's just a saw good him guy, yeah. solid guy, honest. Lou's one of those guys that when I would fuck up, yeah. at a gig, he'd call me the next day and go. Don't ever fucking do that again. Whatever you did, what the fuck are you thinking? Yeah, you know what, what could what could Jack Gallagher have possibly done to yeah. render that? But it would happen occasionally. Oh yeah, I opened up for the Four Tops once and it went poorly. But anyway, what'd you do? A bunch of I uh, just didn't black go. Jokes? I, I was yeah. Hey, how about these guys? Huh? <laughs> Dancing like crazy. God love them. No, no, no. No, you know me. I'm like you yeah. know the whitest white bread yeah, in yeah, the yeah. bag. Yeah. No, I was outside at some park in Atlanta. It didn't go well. Okay. Anyway, uh, I got an agent. I started doing colleges. Yeah. Uh, I did a bunch of colleges. Um, I 
went to San Francisco and did the comedy competition, did pretty well. What year was that when it was still important? Uh, 80, I can't remember. Jim Samuels won it. Oh, he passed. Was Jim Samuels was first, mm-hmm. Kevin Pollack yep. second, me, mm-hmm. Durst, mm-hmm. and Carrie Snow were the final four. Wow. Yeah. So that opened up the West Coast for me. And then at a certain point, the agency said, look, you've done everything you can do in Boston. If you're serious about this move, go to New York or L.A. So they pushed you. Yeah, so I moved to L.A. Right. And, you know, I passed the audition at the Improv, and I worked at the Improv. And I did a variety of, uh, you know, auditions and pilots. I did a couple of pilots. I was on Cheers. I did a guest spot on Cheers. I did a, they brought the Twilight Zone back for a couple of seasons. I did an episode of that as a guest person. I did uh, a little part in uh, Heartbreak Ridge with Clint Eastwood. You did? A very tiny part. They always give those to comics. Yeah. Were you the guy going, that way? I was the MC in oh, a really? club. Oh, okay. Yeah. And yeah. I went, it's funny because I went to the premiere with my wife and we're like sitting in front of Sammy Kahn. Uh-huh. And uh, I'm on stage literally now. I'm not exaggerating. My name is in the crawl longer than I'm on screen. <laughs> <laughs> so at the end of the movie, the crawl stars, it says guest starring. It's under my, my wife, this loud, guest starring. It's like, honey, please, come on. And then, uh, you know, I did that for a bunch yeah. of time. And then I got a, uh, an audition for a job in Sacramento to host a daily kind of talk variety show in Sacramento. So I moved to Sacramento thinking, well, I'll do this and see how it goes. And I've been there for 20 some odd years now. It's a, it's on television. It's now? not. It's off. It lasted nine months. It was terrible. It was a great experience because I learned how to be on TV. I learned how to read a prompter, and yeah. since then I've done a ton of work for PBS. Uh, right. I, I co-host a nationally syndicated PBS show. Right. But the guy who was running this show in Sacramento didn't know what the fuck he wanted. Right. He kept saying to me, "Funny, you're being funny. Don't be funny. Let's have fun. Yeah. Not funny. Fun, not funny. That was the whole motto. Fun, not funny. So right. I'm a comedian. I don't know if something pops up, I say something funny. Yeah. So it was just kind of a disastrous experience. But, but. like, so you're in L.A. and you're, you're, you're obviously a working actor. You're a working comic. You're touring. A working got... actor stretching it. I was, but, I, was but doing... I mean, you were doing episodic. Yeah, I was, had, every now and then I'd get a spot. But the big dream was to have a sitcom. Yeah, And you, sure. did, you did a couple of pilots for reals? Like uh, you, yeah, I did. Uh, no, not all the way through. I did a... A, a presentation pilot. The, the, very little happened while I was there. More stuff happened when I left. Right, that always happens. Because I'm left, leaving. And, then I'm yeah. like, and I wrote a one-man show. Which was the first show? Letters to Declan. Mm-hmm. When my son was born, Declan, who's now 19, had a really rough birth. So I started writing letters to him, seriously, that I still write to him and his brother. I'm going to give to them when they get older. And so I wrote a show based around that, and it created a ton of heat. And I... I got offers from everybody and I signed with ABC for, got a sitcom deal. And uh, so that, I spent two years developing that show and then the show got on, was supposed to get on the air as a mid-season replacement. You know, that whole process is such a pain in the ass and it's debilitating and And, and it's not based on anything that makes any sense. No, because seven days before the show was supposed to premiere, they canceled it. Before the show ever went on the air. It's I've got ads and TV guide, billboards were up. It's fucking horrendous. And you know why? It's the, the, my second one-man show. I had a meeting with the vice president of primetime ABC after yeah. it got canceled. And he said to me, long story short, it had nothing to do with you. It was a political thing. You were just the guy it happened to. So they used my show as a pawn to get somebody else to quit because they weren't happy with him. And they embarrassed him by using my show in a way that would embarrass him politically in the industry. And that was the title of my second one-man show, was Just the Guy. Because he said to me, don't take it personally. You're just the guy it happens. See, this is the thing. How can that, you not take it personally? Well, yeah, but that's the fucking thing that kills me. And I'm just, is that, 
you, you know, when we do a show based on our life, that's our life. Yeah. And it's not like we're going to be like, well, I'll just make up a life because that, that was it. This was my window here and this was what happened and this is what made sense to make this happen. And all of a sudden you just become a chip on a board. That, yeah. you know, they're, they're and they s- move you around. We'll put them after home improvement. Right. But to, to, to actually make a move with your life and your creativity to, to just, you know, get rid of somebody. Yeah. Fuck. It took me a long time to recover from that. That was devastating. So I wrote the second show, and I've been very, very lucky because in Sacramento, they've, they've been, you know, the community's been great to me. If you fly into the airport in Sacramento, I'm the voice welcoming you to Sacramento. Jack Gallagher saying, will welcome you to don't Sacramento. Don't park your car in the greens. That's me saying, yeah. you know. Did they tell you, like, no jokes, no jokes? Don't be funny. <laughs> fun, not fun. <laughs> not Please. Fun. Hey, you got a bomb? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Way to take well, it out of your pants. That's right. You know. Weave it in your car. But I've been lucky because there's a theater in Sacramento that has commissioned the last three of my one-man shows. So how many guys get a theater calling them up and saying, can you write a show, and then give you seven weeks? I did 60 performances of my last play because they call me up and say, we, you got something in mind? And they walk me through the process. I mean, people write one-man shows all the time. I've had four produced because this theater says to me, great theater run by the Busfield brothers, Timothy Busfield, the actor, and his brother Buck, who runs the theater, who's a great guy. Yeah. Call me up and say, you got an idea? We'll develop it. And the last one I... I did ended in last November. I did sixty performances of it, so I'm lucky. The last one was the uh, the one that I watched. Different kind of cool. Different and thank cool. you for watching it because I send it to people and they never watch it. No, I sat there and and I watched it and I enjoyed it and I you know I I'm sort of fascinated with the one man show process because I've done them. Yeah. You know I've done a couple. Yeah. One that was actually complete. Right. You know uh, other ones that were sort of like uh, I'm working on a one man show. You know what? I got it out. You know I, I feel yeah, better. I'm done. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. 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 yeah I know that's. Yeah. <laughs> But, How's your one-man show? It's over. I did it. Yeah, I did it. It was did great. did it for one night at Largo. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah, great. It was Everybody great. loved it. Yeah, I felt better, you know. Uh, but the uh, I didn't... Uh, well, my second one-man show the, that was legitimate about the divorce, it, there was just no good guys, and there was no winning, and you know nobody changed, and it, <laughs> and people left feeling a little drained and oh, uncomfortable. Boy. Yeah, he's yeah. in trouble. Oh, boy. That's not the response you want. But the process from doing the first one-man show, because it was conscious, you were obviously... You'd had enough of Hollywood on yeah. some level. Yeah, yeah. And what was going on in the clubs that made you decide Mark that? Anderson ran the improvs. I remember all that those guy. Rooms. He was a little odd. He had all those rooms, and he said to me, Declan had just been born. Yeah. And he said, if you write a show, I'll give you the San Francisco improv for a month. Yeah. And I got, I got nothing to write about. Everybody's doing a one-man show, and it's about you know, how big their penis is. Or, you know, I didn't see that one. Well, was was, you know, every, at that point, everybody and was I writing a one-man show. I know Jeff Garland did one about eating, probably. Yeah. He did, he did several where they were one-man shows. But the uh, only part he wrote I want to eat cheese with you. Right. But the only part Jeff Garland would write of his one-man show would be the title of the show. <laughs> and then, <laughs> Jeff's a good friend of mine. He's the funniest guy I know. I, he's hilarious. And calls he's, me, he's the only guy that calls me up and doesn't say who it is. He calls me up at like 10 30 at Just night i'll answer talking. the phone he'll say listen i'm on the 101 yeah, yeah and yeah. i know who it is i've had him on a couple of times he's hilarious but mark said if you write a show i'll give you the improv for a month and at that point i was working clubs still and declan was really young and i thought if i could stay home for a month that'd be amazing you might be able to enjoy your your child's uh yeah, for a little bit of, of life so I, I wrote the show i started doing it to san francisco improv lisa line gang was yeah, the manager great. then yep. she really helped me develop it i wound up i got great reviews and i wound up being there for five months they just kept extending it. Then I took it to Washington, D.C. for three months. Then I signed the sitcom deal. And then my world fell apart mm-hmm. after I let ABC. You know, it's like the Godfather thing. I get out of L.A. and then they suck me right back in. Just when you think you're out, they suck you back in. But and also, like, you know, you, you now have, like, one kid. 
Uh, yeah. And uh, you're excited. This might be a turning point. You're yeah. about oh, yeah. to happen. Oh, my God. I'm going to be and, huge. Uh, yeah. And then uh, that, uh, that and blows crashes up. crashes and burns. And then it's over. And it's such a typical cliched Hollywood story. You know, one day I can get the vice president of ABC on the phone and the next day he's in a meeting. And well, you're I, lucky that he told you personally. A yeah. lot of times things go away and, 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 and no one will tell you. Took it's six it. months, but I'm still friendly with him. I sent him a copy of the latest play. He didn't watch it, but I sent him a copy. The, the ex-head of NBC, ABC? Yeah. Oh, really? Good guy, Stu Bloomberg, who's a good guy. And he was very honest. With I me. think I met that guy, yeah, too. Yeah, he's a good guy. Well, you still act. I mean, you were the doctor on The Curve. Yeah, I did how many, Curb. How many episodes? I did four or five episodes. Did you know doctor. Larry before? No, I just did the audition. Oh, really? Yeah. And it was a fun audition because what happened was... You were funny. You, well, you were a great straight man. Yeah, what happened was I went to do the audition. As I walked into the audition room, you know what that's like. It's like six people on a couch and Larry. And Larry says, can you excuse me for a minute? I got to go make a phone call. And I said, yeah, go ahead. So while he's out of the room, they explain the scene to me. Yeah. And the scene is you're pissed at Larry. Right. Because he won't pay your wife, blah, 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 blah. Right. So as soon as Larry walked in the room for real, yeah. he stuck out his hand and said, I'm Larry Davis. I said, shut the fuck up, Larry. Sit down. I know who you are. Yeah. What the fuck is going on? So yeah. we did the scene and then he stopped. He said, well, you just, you just started right in on me. I yeah. said, well, I figured what the hell i got nothing to lose yeah and i got the gig and i did four or five of them and the last one i did he said i said to him you know i think i'm the only person who's not a name who keeps coming back yeah i said can i can i refer to myself as a recurring character yeah and larry david you know that waited for yes you can <laughs> I thought, oh, excellent so <laughs> now I, he gave me permission it was like the pope blessing you. yeah but you know i did that but but mostly you know i'm I'm still in Sacramento with my family, you know. The second one-man show is about the ABC yeah, debacle. debacle. The third one-man show. third one-man show is called What He Left. My mom died after a long illness. She was yeah. sick for a long time with sort of a mental illness, and she died. What does that mean? Uh, she had some... I had, a, I had a sister who died when she was very young, like 40. Yeah. And my mom never got over it. Huh. Just kind of sent her into this little pit of despair that she was depressed and never got over it. Did she have that thing where, uh, what do they call it... Uh, uh, failure to uh, like she lost her will to live kind of thing sort of she just would go in and out it's really sad she was such a vibrant person and then when Sharon died she just kind of lost it the heartbreak yeah. yeah so my mom died yeah and then 19 later, uh, days later my father died huh. unexpectedly like out of nowhere huh. and uh, when he died he left nine hours of audio tape talking about his life, which my younger brother Bill got him to do. We knew he was making the tapes. We didn't know what was on them. When he died, I got the tapes. He just sat there with a like with we a tape are? recorder and said, "When I my name is John." And the the beginning ones are funny because <clears throat> my name is John Gallagher. Yeah. And at the end, he's like, "You know, God damn it, pain in the ass, son of a bitch. If I ever see him again, <laughs> got, got really honest. Got comfortable. And he talked about a lot of stuff you don't want to hear you yeah. talk about. Sure. Like he had a nervous breakdown." And I remember the nervous breakdown because I was like 11. I remember them taking him out of the house in his robe, shaking, and saying to my mom, where's dad going? And she's saying he just needs to see a doctor. But we were Irish Catholic. He didn't talk about that. Yeah. I mean, I remember walking up to his bedroom, my mom saying, your dad's sick. And, and the door was shut. Don't bother your dad. Well, the door was shut for days. And I remember going to and putting my ear against the door. Yeah. And then I remember just thinking, fuck it, and opening the door. And I'll tell you, I remember this like it was yesterday. There was a little light coming in from the bottom of a shade. Yeah. <clears throat> and my dad was lying in his bed, curled up in the fetal position, shaking. Your dad. My dad. And you're 11. And I was, and I shut the door and thought, fuck. And I pretended it didn't happen. And then a couple of days later, they took him away. But he talks about this on the tape. What happened? When they took him away, I mean, they took him my away? My sister drove him oh, to okay. a hospital. For how long? 
Uh, he was gone probably for, I don't recall, I was so young, probably a couple weeks. But that, it's interesting, that vivid moment of like, well, if he's not in control. Exactly. You know, who's running the ship Who's here? running the show? And we're going to flounder because my dad was one of these guys who was detached, but he was in control. What was his racket? He was a salesman, sold everything from life insurance to roofs. He was and, a hustler. And what do you think, what brought on the thing, you know? Did yeah, I know exactly what brought it on. He got caught, they thought he was embezzling money. And he was not embezzling money. He was trying to. He was trying to. He was selling life's a long story. It's all chronicled in what he left. Okay. He was trying to. It's a long, complicated thing. He was trying to help these people not get their policies canceled because they couldn't make their premium payments. Right. And we lived near Brockton, Massachusetts, which was a really depressed town at that point. Still is. Yeah. And he was waiting for some money to be shifted into his account from bonuses. So he was moving money around. And they right. caught him doing it. And they threatened to expose him. He was just sort of doing a Robin Hood thing. He was trying to. He did it poorly. Right. Um, I don't know how much of this he was, what he, you know, but his, his description of what he was doing is he's trying to help people. Uh, knowing my dad, I don't think he was trying to do anything illegal, but what he did was probably illegal. And he thought he could cover his ass. He didn't think anybody'd find out. It's, it was going to be like three days. If I can do this in the next three days. And they caught I, him. Right. There was a window. And he left. I mean, I talk about this in the play. He talks about it. He on his he tapes, felt demoralized. He's a failure. He he drove. He just started driving. Wound up in a hotel somewhere in Connecticut or something. Was going to kill himself. Ugh. And finally decided to come home. So I found I got these tapes. And at the same time I got the tapes, my sister was talking about they were going to sell the house I grew up in. Yeah. So I wrote a show about him and the house and my relationship with him, and I used sound bites from his tapes in the show i would say my dad did this and then they play his voice saying i i drove to this how is that as an effect good huh oh it's unbelievable yeah i I have a similar like situation with my father's and he's in a little hot water now but it's interesting when well i i've always thought that you i mean you've been in therapy yeah yeah. and and you know, there, there are certain things you have to work through yourself. Right. And then when your parents, either because they get too old to realize they shouldn't tell you shit. Right. That, you know, they, <laughs> they, 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 they dump something into your brain. And there's that actually a moment where you're like, yeah, I probably could have not. Yeah, I would have yeah, I, I rather just, you know, not known. My but, dad uh, became my, one of my really good friends as we got older. And I would talk to him on the phone every day. I'd call him every day. Because he was a good guy. Yeah. And when I got past the point of him being my father, and I realized he was just this frail guy who didn't know what the fuck he was doing. He had five kids. That's He's trying rough, to keep right? his head above water. Yeah. He didn't have a college education. He hustled, man. And he was a good guy. Yeah. And we never were hungry. And we never went shoeless. And we had jackets in the, in the winter in Boston. And he did all this. And I didn't give him any fucking credit for it. Until yeah. I started thinking, this is fucking hard to do. Yeah. And then I became my friend. And then he passed away and I missed him. Yeah. And, and so I wrote this show about him and it's a really touching uh, sort of, I wanted to get that one right because it was my sort of tribute to him. Right. Just it's, a normal fucking guy. Just one of these guys you pass on the street and not even give him a second glance. Well, it seems like thematically, you know, the, from what you're telling me about this show and what, what, what I watched uh, in the show, uh, is it a different kind of cool? It's called A Different Kind of Cool. Is that, you know, as... Evolving empathy. Yeah, that you know, we look at things in a certain way, and and, and certainly fathers. That when you really think about like what, what the age my parents had me at, and and what was I doing at that age? And, yeah, I think that all the time. And you're just like, how the fuck did? Why did I expect them to know what they were doing? Well, that's a good way to look at it. Why? Yeah, because I don't. 
Well, that's what I always say. I say, like, you know, when your parents say they did the best they can, yeah. they didn't. <laughs> they did what they could. They did what they, that's a great way of putting it. You did what you could. Yeah. You could have done, you could have tried harder, maybe. Some things. You know, yeah. there were some things. But you then, had. you know, you have kids, and Declan was a great kid. But then Liam comes along, and Liam is the subject of a different kind of cool because, you know, you, you watched it. When Liam was seven, he's going to be 16 in the fall. But when he was seven, he was diagnosed with autism. But what my question in, in looking at the, at the show and, and in your experience and, and how you, you portrayed it in the show was that, I mean, it must have been, a, something must have been apparent before seven. I mean, how, how strong was the denial on your part? Was because a, you talk yeah. about that, that, you know, that you were adverse to having him tested. Yeah, or, I didn't want him labeled. Because once he's labeled, he's labeled for life. And I didn't know at that time that we could, we could control the label, that, we could, that it didn't have to be what I thought it was going to be. There was some denial now looking back. You don't know you're in denial. No, no, I, I'm, I was just curious when I was watching no, it because it seemed like he was there... always a smart kid. He was always one of these kids. You know, he started reading at four. Yeah. Just, I, I say in the play, he, he, yeah. he walked behind my wife and read an ad out of the newspaper from top to bottom at four. Right. And, and words that were, you know. Um, but there was some social problems, uh, issues with him. And so it got to the point where we needed help. And right. in the second grade, we had him tested. And they said he's autistic. What kind of social problems? Uh, perseverating on topics. Um, I hear that word a lot because my girlfriend works with autistic there kids. You go. Perseverating where yeah. it's a repetition. Just and same thing. Talk about the same thing over and over. Uh, an interest in one thing. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of autistic kids are interested in trains, railroad trains. Is that true? Yeah. That's yeah, a yeah. Don't know why. But Liam has, he's grown out of that, but was way into trains. Uh, difficult to, doesn't look at you when he talks to you. Uh, it's like stuff I talk about in the play. Like when, when we're talking to each other and you, I'm saying something, you nod your head. Yeah. Where'd you learn how to do that? Right. That's through osmosis. Right. Your parents didn't say nod your head when somebody talks it's to you. Just being enculturated. He didn't pick that something. stuff up. Uh -huh. So he has to learn that stuff. Right. Uh, he, for years, we tried to get him to ask questions. And I don't know if I talk about this in the play. But we wanted him to ask one, ask a question, because he would just talk to you about his day, what he'd been doing. And so we, we'd try to have conversations. And the question we wanted him to ask was, how was your day? And just worked on that forever and ever and ever with his therapist, with occupational therapy. Now, is that about actually being able to, to have concern or to be taught to listen to someone else? It's a, it's a really weird situation because... He has to fit into a certain degree to function in society. I don't want him to change. That's the lesson I learned is that I don't want him to change. I want him to stay as this person that he is, which is completely different and unique and, and honestly, a really different kind of cool. Right. But he has to function in society. He's authentic. Yeah, he's one of a kind. I right. Say, he, he is. Well, you talk to him and you go, wow, this kid is, he's interesting, he's yeah. funny, he's yeah. got a, but he's different. Right. Um, but he has to fit into society. And this is the thing as a parent, when I'm gone, I want him to be able to function. And there are certain things that you have to do to function. And one is to engage other people. Now, you, but you, these kids have needs, but they, mm -hmm. do, they may not have interests in other people necessarily. So that's fine. And yeah. I don't care if he's But is that true? Yeah. He loves other people and he wants to talk to people and he wants to engage you in conversation. He just has a hard time with it. It's very difficult to describe. He just has a difficult time with it. He doesn't know how to do it. You have to teach him tiny steps. And things that you and I picked up just, again, through osmosis, yeah. he, he, he's had to learn, like right. asking you, how was your day? Right. And I remember walking across the playground with him at school. He was in like the fourth grade and he just turned to me and said, so how was your day? And I called my wife and said, he just asked me how my day was. It was like this giant fucking breakthrough. Uh -huh. And she said, Liam? And I said, Liam Gallagher 
asked me how my day was. Uh-huh. And I remember saying to him, good, good day. <laughs> and now he'll say, you know, I mean, he's a 15-year-old kid. He's got the same interest that a 15-year-old kid has, and he's just different. Mm-hmm. That's all. Now, in, in terms of, uh, there was something about, like, I've known peculiar people, and in, in comedy. They, oh, I, yeah. I, tell me about it. I can tell you, and they call it on the spectrum. That's the, the autistic spectrum. I've met a lot of guys can, growing up. I can up. point guys that are on the spectrum to you that we both know. And say, sure. Him, him, him. Yeah, they're savant-like. They have mm-hmm. a, a certain brilliance around certain areas, yeah. but they have a complete blind side to other areas. Yeah. And there were people I grew up with that had that before this diagnosis became uh, as broad as it prevalent is. as it is now. One in every 110 kids is diagnosed. And a lot of them are, are very, you know, bright. Yeah, yeah. One out of every 10 is on the spectrum. Explain that. What one out of every 110. 110. So yes. what is that spectrum? I mean, it the goes spectrum from... spectrum goes from kids who sit in the corner and don't have any control uh, of, of anything, anything can't right. speak, right. to Asperger's kids, which are at the far end of the spectrum, who can tell you anything you want to know about the cosmos. Right. They might have one or two areas that they're experts Complete in at obsessive interest. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And Liam is probably on a scale of one to 10, one being, uh, you know, Rain Man. And 10 being Asperger's, Liam's probably a seven or an eight. And there's so. physicality issues as he well? He does a lot of stimming. It's called stimming, where he'll uh, shake his hands real violently, or he'll jump up and down, or he'll uh, make a fist and push it into his forehead sometimes. And, and I ask him why he does that, and he says it just kind of relieves the pressure. It's like, It makes perfect sense. It does, because we do it. Sure we do. Whether it's, Ugh! yeah, or... or Jumping up or punching something, yeah, yeah. and I'll or say exercising, to him, and or, and he'll say to me, yeah, he'll say to me, oh, I'm stimming a lot today, yeah, um, and it's it's it breaks your heart sometimes because he'll say to me, Dad, I know this autism causes me to do this, and I want it to stop, yeah, but I'll say to him, look, it's what makes you creative. The kid's written a Simpson script. He he's created a whole town in his head of people that are that are actually, you know, I mean, he's just yeah. got this great imagination that well, I don't want to squelch that I was trying to for a while. Well, the realization around that was uh, a mixture of, of concern and, 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 uh, and fear for the kid. Yeah, I, and embarrassment. And embarrassment. I was embarrassed of him at times, and I'm no longer embarrassed of him. Well, you talk a little bit about that moment you had with that guy. Yeah, a guy came up to me and said, uh, is he going to get over this? And I said, what? You know, jumping up and down, acting the way he acts. But you go. knew what he was talking about, right? I knew what he was talking about, but I wanted to, I wanted him to tell me. Right. You know, I mean, it's your kid. Yeah. What am I going to say? No, he's not going to get over it. Yeah. And at the time, I didn't say anything to him. I, I wish I had, but at the time, I wasn't confident enough in myself and him, Liam, to, to deal with it the way I should have dealt with it. But people do that all the time. See, the thing about Liam is there's no physicality. There's no physical cue that tells you he's different. He's not in a wheelchair. He doesn't have any muscular dysfunction. He, 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 he doesn't have anything as a physical... See, if we see people with a physical cue, yeah. you know I'm going to have to deal with this a little differently. Right. But Liam's not that way. You start talking to him, and it takes you about a minute to realize, okay, well, something a little different happening yeah. here. <laughs> a little skew. Yeah. You know, and that throws people off. There are yeah. people who just blow them right off, don't want anything to do with them. And I, and I was embarrassed of him at times, because he's my kid, and we'd be standing places, and he'd be bouncing up and down. And I'd be, dude, stop bouncing. Yeah. But then I had this moment with him this really revealing moment where I was working really hard with him. I mean, I rewrote textbooks for him. I just wanted the, everything to work. And I had this really telling moment with him where he, he basically told me I was doing it the wrong way. Yeah. And uh, he told me he was doing the best he could and that he was really trying hard. And why was I so angry all the time? And I thought, shit, I'm 
not doing this right. Yeah. So I just stepped back and I let him be himself and I let him, so I watched what he did and I sort of followed him. And and now we have uh, a way we we get, I mean, he's my bud and we, I understand him better. It was me, it wasn't him. So you figured out how to communicate with on, on his terms because it's not physical therapy. You know, right. it's not like we're not treating not a gonna, sprain. I came to the conclusion I didn't want to change him. I was trying to change him. I was trying to make him into, he's not a boring person. I was trying to make him into every white bread person I know. No, don't do, do it like this because this is the way everybody does it. Well, I, I imagine that that weird mixture of, of concern for what he's going to have to go through yeah. that had to trump your embarrassment at some point. Yeah, and, 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 and it wasn't about me anymore. Right. It's like, well, this isn't about you. Yeah. It's not, surprisingly, not right. everything's about you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was about him and yeah. making his life as, as nice as possible for him and, and, and setting up a, you know, a pathway for him. And people deal with this all the time. And this is the reaction I get from people is, I have an autistic nephew, I have an autistic child, my grandchild is autistic, and we don't know what to do. Well, I'm letting him live his life. I'm trying as hard. You know, when he goes off the path, I tell him, you're going off the path. Dude, don't do that. That's not right. Like what? Well, whatever. I mean, you know, if he's, <laughs> I can't think of a specific, but I do it with his older brother. You know, it's like being a parent. You right. Go, you know, don't do that again. That was ridiculous. Or whatever. Now, what about, like, does he have friends? Oh, yeah. It's hard for him to make friends because he's different. And at 15, you want him to be like everybody else. And he's a little naive. It usually just takes one guy who's got his shit together to, to sort of take him under his wing and say, you know, back off. And he wanted to go to school. He's just started his freshman year. He finished, yeah. just finished his freshman year. And one of his goals was to make friends. Right. And uh, he has a couple of really close friends, uh, Andrew and Drake. And then he made friends at school. And he's, he goes to a small school that focuses on technology because he's one of these kids that's a technological whiz. Really? Computers. Yeah. He collects vintage gaming systems. Yeah. And, you know, he's one of these kids that really, he wants to be, he wants to develop video games. He wants to go, he knows the college he wants to go to. He, he's, he's a smart kid. Well, I have to figure that industry is full of people on the spectrum. And people say to me all the time, what's going to happen with Liam? Like, what do you mean what's going to happen with him? I say, is what, Liam's going to be that guy in the cubicle next to you who's a little quirky. Yeah. Who's a little, does things, that's what Liam's going to be. He's yeah. a handsome, bright, smart kid. He's just got some social, and they, this is the frustrating thing. They don't know what causes this. They don't know. No ideas. Like, you must have looked at everything. I've talked. There's the preeminent research facility in basically the world for autism in Sacramento. It's called the Mind Institute. Yeah. And I've researched that. I've talked to the head of research, the director of research, and they tell you we have theories, but we don't know. What are the theories? Uh, one theory has to do with antibodies. That, and this is a really, I can't explain this one to you because it's really complicated, but antibodies that are in mother's breast milk that... Uh, form some sort of a weird thing in the brain with kids. Huh. This is the big theory. One of the biggest theories now is called the accelerated brain theory. When your brain develops normally, yeah. I can use that word in quotes, uh, everything happens at the, you know, so you can, it connects at the right pace. Right. So you can crawl and walk and talk right. and all that stuff. The accelerated brain theory says that one side of the brain grows more quickly than the other side, so misconnections are made. Yeah. So that you have more stuff going into this area and not enough going into that area. Huh. But they don't know at this point. There is no, they don't know. It's interesting. After a certain point, I have to imagine that it, it doesn't matter. Precisely. It doesn't matter. And people say the vaccines caused it. Uh, too much mercury. Yeah. It doesn't matter. That's the perfect. I mean, that's how we think. It doesn't matter. We are where we are. Right. I can't go back and change anything. Right. So I'm going to make this what it is. And we don't treat him any differently than his brother. We don't treat him any differently than anyone else. We say, 
it takes you a little longer to catch on to stuff, or it takes you a little longer to do this, or it's harder for you to do that. But look, you're better at this. Yeah. You can do this better than anybody we know. And how's his brother handle him? His brother is tremendous. Uh, they're in San Francisco right now. What's the now, age difference? Five years. Declan's 19 huh. and Liam's 15. Uh, Declan loves him and they get along like two peas in a pod and Declan is so patient and this is just this metamorphosis that's happened recently because for a long time Declan was frustrated by him because Liam does you know he'll talk about the same thing over and over again and he, he like he loves Calvin and Hobbes the comic mm-hmm. strip and he can quote you every single strip verbatim hmm. um, but Declan went through this little period I think after he moved away from home where he the, the, I can't say enough about how well they get along. They love each other, and, they, and I keep, they're up in San Francisco now together for a couple of days. Declan lives there now, and Liam's spending a couple of days with him, and Declan will send me these videos of them at the movies or them on Hate Street. I got this great picture of Liam smoking a cigarette on Hate Street. It's a fake cigarette. But, uh-huh. uh, you, yeah. sure? Are you sure about that, I'm Dad? I'm pretty positive. No. <laughs> I smelled his breath when he got in the car. <laughs> now they get along great. Declan's a great kid. He's a smart kid. and, and uh, Looks out for he him. He sticks up for him, and he knows, you know. I mean, we're all sort of protective of him uh-huh. because he's our baby, even though he's 15. And, right. And he does have these challenges. Can he, is he going to be able to drive and stuff? Oh, yeah. He's, he's studying for his learner's permit test right now. He wants to get a driver's license. He wants to go to college. He wants, he's already talking about living away from home. He'll ask us questions. Devin, Declan never asked, like, uh, how do I know when it's time to pay the gas bill? Yeah. Or how am I going to do my laundry? What what kind of food do I buy and keep in the refrigerator? How long do I keep fruit? Really? I mean, he'll ask you all these questions. I say to him, dude, it'll all come. Just don't <laughs> worry about that stuff. But he might, he's ready to go. Dad, uh, when I move out, you're going to be sad? Will you be sad when I'm gone? <laughs> well, yeah, sort of, maybe. A couple days, <laughs> half hour. <laughs> it's interesting, all that forward thinking about Yeah. just so he, he's, he knows that he'll have some... Uh, control over the future environment. That yeah, and that. you know, it's not a debilitating thing. People right. people think every kid with autism is Rain Man. Right. He's, not, he's, he's, he's a human being. He's just different. We don't like different. We don't like different. Well, I like that. I like that uh, that framing of it, that there's an authenticity to it. There's a uniqueness to it. He's not, uh, you know, dysfunctional. No, not in the least. And, and his, uh, he's his, more functional than a lot of uh, normal people I know. It's it's about it's really, and I think in the show you framed it really beautifully in that you know it's about a, someone who can't hide themselves, right? And and that should be is. embraced absolutely because we hide who we are constantly. You Out of you fear are of not yeah you are who you want other people to mm-hmm. think you are. Mm-hmm. And there's a great quote from a John Steinbeck novel, The Winter of Our Discontent, that yeah. I love and that yeah. I've told my kids. And it is you wouldn't care so much about what people thought of you if you knew how little they did it. Yeah. And, and so Liam's not worried about that. Liam doesn't care what you think about him. He goes about his, he doesn't, he just doesn't. He's never bullied or hurt. Oh, he's been bullied tremendously. Yeah. And he's had people hurt his feelings and call him stupid and retarded. Yeah. And he doesn't know why people do that. He's the gentlest soul. He gets angry. I bought him a punching bag because he said, Dad, I need something. To, That's constructive I, stimming. I, I gotta, I got, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I gotta get this, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm mad and I want yeah. it. And I'll hear him in his room punching the punching bag. That's good. But he doesn't understand why people are mean to each other. He, he, he understands it, but he doesn't get it. Yeah. He's got this gentle soul that oh. you think, why would I want to change this person who says to me, why, do, why would people call me names? Why, uh-huh. why? They don't even, he had a group of girls who were giving him a really hard time. Yeah. Ask him if he was on crack all the yeah. time. Because he has this kind of weird way of walking sometimes to hold his head to the side. And he said to me, why do they do that? They, they don't even know me. They don't know who I am and they, or what I'm like, and they call me names. And I think, well... That's the way people act. They want to box you in. Yeah. So he's a good man. He's, you know, it's hard. Uh, it ha- it's, it's, 
sort of not taken over my life, but it, but it's something I spend a lot of time on. Well, what's the most profound change it, it had in terms of who you are and how you see yourself? Uh, I, I, like everybody in this business, I, I was always very concerned about what people thought of me and how I came across and my image of what people thought of me. And I think what he's taught me is that, that I try is, and this isn't hard, easy to do, everybody says they don't care what people think about them. I have gotten to the point where I care less about what people think about me. I take criticism uh, for what it's worth and less to heart if I don't think it's relevant than I used to, if that makes sense. Um, he's taught me that it's okay to be different, that it's okay to be who you are and not try to be who everybody wants you to be or who you think you need to be. And in terms of like, because we're all pretty self-centered people, us comedians in general. Yeah, I would say. And Look at me, uh, the light's on me. Yeah. It's like with hecklers, you know, you want to get a fucking show. Yeah. The lights are on me, I've got the microphone. <laughs> yeah. yeah, has it like, you know, in terms of like, there's one thing to, you know, to have kids, but, but in terms of like, you know, like it seems that through the process of acknowledging your dad's frailty and then, you know, acknowledging this, this condition uh, that the humanity of, of both of those things, I mean, has it made you more uh, sympathetic? Oh, yeah. You, you know, it's, it's, it's your kid. Yeah. And, and I, I, don't, I, I don't know. Yeah. You can't describe to somebody what it's like to have a kid. Yeah. And you can't describe to somebody what it's like to think that there is something wrong with your child. Yeah. Something wrong that they'll never get over. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it breaks your heart. You yeah. lie in bed at night and look at the ceiling and think, what the fuck can I do? I'd do yeah. anything. Yeah. But the realization that there's nothing there to fix, that there's nothing wrong with him, right. that he's just different, right. has made me much more accepting yeah. of looking at other people and thinking, I mean, right. I, don't, I don't care. Yeah. And, you know, every rotten thing that's ever happened in the world has been done by a person. Yeah. You know, every shitty thing, basically, except yeah. for natural disasters, has been caused by some asshole person. Right. And I think, now I think, I, I, I just don't, I don't know. I just don't judge people as harshly. It, it must kill the bully in you. That's for sure. Yeah, I was never a bully. I got bullied. I was the kid that got I've been both, shoved in lockers. But, yeah. And, oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was a skinny, tall, little skinny kid. And I, I remember in high school just trying to avoid certain kids because I knew I was going into the fucking locker. Yeah. And so, how's that affected the, uh, you know, I mean, in a sense, uh, obviously you're doing shows about it, but what about, has, what, what do you, What's your stand-up like these days? Do you do the stand-up? Uh, I do. You know, I can't. I don't work. In, I shouldn't say I can't. I don't work in clubs anymore because I'm close to 60. Mm -hmm. And nobody, you know, what the age level in clubs is. Nobody yeah. wants to hear their fucking father on right. stage complain his back hurts. Yeah. Um, so I do a lot of corporate events. Yeah. And a lot of the stuff I do uh, is tied into, lately has been sort of tied into the autism thing. How is that, uh, in, in what way? Are you providing a lot of relief for people? I think so. I, get, I, I can't. You know, it's weird, and, and I'm sure you have the same thing with the success of this podcast. People write me letters thinking I know what I'm doing. Right. And if you watch the play, you realize, I don't know what I'm doing. I have just gotten to a point where I'm more comfortable not knowing what I'm doing. You have some acceptance. Yeah, and I think that's fine. I think that's what people with, with, with any sort of difference in their lives find comfort in somebody else talking about it. Because these are things you don't generally talk. And about. talking about it like a comic will, in the sense that, yeah, like you funny. know, I mean, yeah, I we can disarm it. it a little bit. Yeah. That you know, the the pain is tempered by uh, a sort of uh, a wit and an acceptance of it. Yeah, one of the nicest letters I got. I've gotten so many letters yeah. from people doing this show. 
it's like a 79-year-old guy wrote me a letter and said, I don't have, I saw your show, I don't have anybody in my life with autism, but my wife has Alzheimer's. And I realized after seeing your show that I'm not letting her be the person she needs to be right now. Mm. And so uh, this gig I did yesterday uh, was, I, I incorporated some of this stuff. I'm trying to get the play out there more. I'm trying to get people in Hollywood to look at this and understand this is a timely issue. But you know what it's like. If you don't live in Hollywood, you can't be serious about stuff. I can't get people to watch the play. I can't get people to read the script. It's like, I send it to people. I mean, you watched it. Uh, uh, my friend Lou, Lou Viola watched it. I sent it to Dave Becky, who's a, a, an acquaintance of my mine, old, uh, your manager. old manager, who yeah. I knew forever. Oops, yeah, sorry. sorry. And uh, he, ne he, he never got around to watching it. You know, people are too busy. But the reaction from people watching this play is something I have never experienced before in my career. I did 60 performances. I got 60 standing ovations. That's, that's never happened to me. And people come up to me afterwards and say, I never thought I'd hear anybody talk about this in a way that was funny, that was uh, clinical to a degree, mm -hmm. and that touched on all the stuff that I feel because I have someone in my life who has Down syndrome. Right. Or, so it's changed the way I go about doing my, it's just changed, having him as a kid, having kids in general changes you, but having Liam as a kid has changed me considerably in terms of what I wanna do. I would like to have people understand more about people who we just discount for one reason or another. Out of fear. Yeah. Out just, of our own discomfort. So I was saying to you, people discount him when they start talking to him and, the, and it goes a little, a little bit sideways instead of going sideways. Like, oh, yeah, okay, okay good. I'm going to go over and talk to Joni over well, here. Well, I think like, there, 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 I, there has to be some empathy for them too in the sense that they don't know how to handle it. And I feel and, fine about that. It's the difference between that guy saying to me, is he going to get over it? At that point of me thinking, you fucking asshole. Yeah. And now thinking... I understand you're really uncomfortable with my son. <laughs> and that's your problem. That's not, because look at him, he's smiling. And you got your hands in your pocket jiggling your change. Yeah. So that's what it is. People, People are uncomfortable. And they have to if learn. If you spend 20 minutes with yeah. him, you'd want to spend another hour with him and say, tell me more about this thing you were talking about, because that's interesting. Because they're unique. Yeah. Everyone's and, and that's unique. what people can't get a handle on. And that's not a crusade for me. Sure, I don't want to sure. go out and start beating sure. the drum. But I think that this show has some legs because... This is something that people don't know anything. Everybody thinks it's Rain Man. Yeah. Oh, so he can, you know, if you drop uh, toothpicks yeah. on the ground, he can tell you how many? Yeah. No, he's not a savant. Right. He's got autism. He's, right. He's, this but if you happen to ask him about Calvin and Hobbes. Boom. Hey, I'll tell you a really funny story. We're riding in the car one day. The four of us are in the car and we're going to San Francisco. Yeah. And I'm telling my, I see a CHP on the side of the road. And I tell my wife, hey, I read this thing in the paper where the cops are pulling you over and they're making you say the alphabet backwards as a, as a sobriety test. Can you do that? And she says, no, I can't do it. So Declan's sitting in the back seat. And I say, Declan, can you say the alphabet backwards? And Declan, being who he is, says, yeah, give me a second. And I look in the mirror. I can see him writing the alphabet down. I said, right. no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. Liam is in the way back in the station yeah. wagon that faces backwards. Right. So Liam, can you say the alphabet backwards? He was maybe nine. Yeah. And he said the alphabet backwards faster than you can say it forward. And my wife said, you put him up to this. I said, I, I, oh no way. God. And I said, how do you do that? And he said, I just see it in my head and I, and I see it backwards and say the letters. Explain that to me. Wow. So he's got these little, that used to be his party trick for a while. Oh, yeah. Like, Liam, say the alphabet backwards. CBA. It's an enviable talent. Yeah. But, it's the, but there's other stuff that gets in his way. Sure. And he knows that. Yeah. And he wants to get by it. Right. You know, he'll say, I, I wanted this autism thing to, to stop making me do that. Well, to have that much self-awareness and, and to know that you have these cognitive, you know, that 
you have a cognitive awareness of actions that you don't have complete control over, I imagine he may get a grip on some of those. I hope so. I mean, but on the other hand, you know, he's a healthy kid. There's nothing wrong with him physically. Just for his own comfort. I mean, not out of any judgment. But I I think that I don't know what what kind of cognitive success do they have with that? Where they because he seems to have a lot of self-awareness. So if if he's got in his head to, you know, to take a, a beat and not engage, can he do that? Yeah, he's he's learning how to do that. That's great. And that's something he again yeah. has to learn how to do as opposed right. to to just picking it up. Sure, sure, you know, it's got to be him. And so he's he goes to a bunch of different groups, uh, you know, and learns social skills and stuff like that. And we read books, and it's it's a uh, it's hard to describe for people who aren't in the you know everybody's got something in their life that they deal with, and this is not a huge thing. It's it's. But it, it's changed, it's just changed the way I think of my life, really, and my career. And, you know, for a very long time, my career was the most important thing. Like everybody else, it caused problems in my marriage. It caused problems with my friends and family. And then certain things happen, the show fucking up, the sitcom. Certain things make you stop and go, well, wait a minute, maybe I'm doing this wrong. And then when Liam came along, and it's your kid, and you go, something's not right here. You, you, you just instinctively put every amount of effort into it that you can to try to help them to try to make it okay. And then you realize, you know, okay, well, I'm doing too much or I'm doing too little. I mean, you know, I was fucking that kid up, man. I was doing the wrong things. Yeah, and but in, in, in light of it all, now you're engaged in life and you got that whole other side that isn't selfish connected in the world and it's fucking great. I'm still selfish, though. Why not? Still want everybody to like me. Well, this well, you did good. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I like you. Are we you sounded right? great. Sure. I'll ask the questions you ask. Are we okay? Yeah, we're Are okay, man. <laughs> it's great talking to you. It's good talking to you, too. Thanks. Well, that was Jack Gallagher, and I thought that was a sweet conversation. He's a good guy. Uh, you know, so go to his website uh, and uh, pick up some of those videos uh, because I think it's, I don't know if you know somebody who has a child that has that. It's a difficult and challenging thing, and he brings a, a sheds a lot of uh, light on it, a lot of heart. Okay, so let's uh, let's do the plug thing here. WTFpod.com, go there, get your just coffee.coop WTF blend. And I'll get a few shekels on the back end of that. Donate a few shekels at WTFPod.com. We've got some new merch and new merch coming for the holidays. Some uh, some buttons and some uh, some tote bags are on the way. Get on that mailing list at WTFPod.com. And, uh, and I'll send you a little thing every week. Also, my buddy Matt Bronger, he's been on this show. Very funny guy. If you're in the Portland area, tomorrow night he's recording his album for Comedy Central Records uh, at the... Alberta Rose Theater in Northeast Portland. That's October 14th. There's an 8 o'clock and a 10 o'clock show. It's going to be hosted by uh, Matt Dwyer, and it's going to feature uh, uh, Ron Funches. Is that how you pronounce his last name? He's a funny guy. I, I, I don't know. But anyways, tickets are available online at uh, albertarosetheater.com for, uh, for uh, Matt Bronger CD taping tomorrow night in Portland at the Alberta Rose Theater, 8 and 10 o'clock. Is that my phone ringing? Who the fuck is calling me? Hold on, maybe I better get that. Hello? Hey, Mark. Yo, Mark, it's Dom. Dom Irera, are you fucking kidding me? No, I'm not kidding you. I hadn't even started yet. I just I just called to say hello, see how you're doing. <laughs> it, just, it surprises me when, when, uh, when you call, because you know why? Why? I, I don't think I've ever talked to you on the phone before. Is that possible? 
Uh, it's possible. I mean, uh, you know, I don't know if that I ever needed to talk to you before, but I'm happy to talk to you. It's great to hear. I was seeing, I was watching that George Harrison documentary. Yeah. And, you know, you always reminded me of John Lennon, but like a happier, more creative type of John Lennon, you know? Yeah, you know, I wish I uh, I could get as much as he got done done, because I just don't think that's going to happen for me. He got done a lot. He got done a lot before he was 20. I know, and I, that's uh, that's not going to happen for me, because I can't, like, I could go through a box that I have here in the garage that says Mark age 20 and it's not it, there's not much in that box when did you start writing your creative brilliance uh, i started writing my creative brilliance probably in high school there was a very important two or three poems i did that made the uh, class very uncomfortable and uh and then i would scribble things down in college that i thought was very important and unfortunately i can't i can't read my writing from then so it's lost Tom, until someone can translate it well i understand there's a dark side to you but i've never seen it <laughs> Yeah, I've, I've only seen your joyful embracing of life side. Well, that's the thing about me is like uh, everyone knows this about me. I keep a lot hidden. I keep a lot to myself. You know, I don't share, you know, what's going on with me ever. Well, you share your gift with the world, Mark. <laughs> I, mean, I saw you do stand up at the comedy store a couple weeks ago. And I got to tell you, I mean, I, you know what I like? The fact that you, yeah. you teach so much. I mean, a lot of guys, they try and be funny. Yeah. But you're actually a, a you know a public speaker. Wait a minute, that doesn't sound like a you no, mean, no. But it's good though. It's interesting. Wait, <laughs> interesting and public. All right. No, I love your stuff. You we, know that. Yeah, I know. We did a little bit of an improv the other night. That was exciting. Where you decided to, uh, while you were on stage, just about to close your set, uh, you decided to just you know start a conversation with me in the back of the room, and the audience loved it. Well, see, I like when they don't think we're all in competition with each other, that we can actually goof around, that we're actually at a comedy club, that we can act. It's not like this formal thing. Well, I like the second guy, but the third guy I didn't like. Yeah. You know. Yeah, they know that once we, we talk to each other in a public forum, that we're, we're all just one collective of decent guys that love each other. Yes, that's what comedy's about. And it does, <laughs> no, well, it is pretty funny when you think of the Palestinian comedian following yeah. the Jewish guy and... You know, is, as far is, as like that, things like that go, there is an element of truth to it. I I don't think we sit around nurturing each other. That's for sure. But yeah, there, there's some com camaraderie. No, there. I, there definitely is. We we definitely have an understanding, and we understand that uh, we're all in this together, and we like each other, and we like uh, to watch each other, and uh, and you know we'd really like to to really hope for the best for each other, but that's just difficult. Well, it's <laughs> difficult when you know what it is. I think the hard thing is when somebody really sucks and they do really well. Yeah, and you try not to act like you're bitter. Yeah, yeah, you that's uh, yeah. That, hey, you know what? Good for them. What does that have to do with me? <laughs> yeah, that that would be the uh, the middle section of my career. There's about right. fifteen, fifteen or <laughs> twenty years there where I was. Uh, that was all I did. Where I you remember one time somebody what? said to me, "Does it bother you that Eddie Murphy's getting all these movies?" <laughs> I go, well, why would it bother me? Like, if he didn't get them, like, I was going to get cast in 48 hours? You know? And Eddie Murphy beat me out again. <laughs> yeah, because I went in for that. You know, they wanted yeah, yeah. a 22-year-old black kid, but I said, no, I can do this. <laughs> I, I like when people say, how, how come you don't do a series? Why don't you do, do movies? You know, I never thought of that. That's a good idea. <laughs> yeah, like, Let me cancel my Slappy Bananas gig <laughs> yeah. and, and do a series now. They, they always talk to us like it's our choice. Hey, you should do that. All yeah. right. Oh, man. Let me write that down because yeah. I'll forget. Yeah. <laughs> a movie with De Niro. That's a good idea. That's good exposure. So what, what do you got coming up, man? I got my big Northeast tour coming up for which I'm really happy. I'm going back to New York City, you know, where I started with the uh, improv and all. Working Gotham. 
next week. Well, that's a, a good club. Have you been there? Name, but I like the place. You ever yeah. worked there? Yeah, it's great. It's it's a little. Uh, it's an interesting shape. It's one of those very horizontal clubs. It's it's like uh, uh, it's very wide. So that what date is that? That's the fourteenth and fifteenth. Right, Gotham is- Comedy Club. So you, I remember seeing pictures of you on the wall at the Improv when you were a young man. Oh, I know the original Improv before my head swelled. You know, I don't know if I ever told you that story about with the. Um, I, I I had to take steroids for shingles, and I I do uh, the Fer- Craig Ferguson show. My doctor's a real goomba from Philadelphia, and he uses antiquated words. He goes, "Man, I saw you in Ferguson. You look like a fucking Chinaman." <laughs> Who says Chinaman, right? He goes, what the hell happened to you? I go, he goes, you look like you're on steroids. I go, I was. You gave them to me, nitwit. He goes, oh, sorry. Is that what was going on? You were on steroids? Yeah, I had to take a really strong dose of steroids because I couldn't get rid of the shingles, which is, by the way, the most painful thing. It was the only time in my life I ever groaned and didn't come. Oh my God! I'm gonna make really like really painful. So I should make note not to get shingles. Don't get shingles. No, make, I'm writing that down. Yeah, yeah, make that note. And where else are you gonna be? I'm doing Providence on the twentieth, uh, and Boston on the twenty-first, and oh. Springfield twenty uh, second. Boston's a, a different thing now. It's not the Comedy Connection anymore. It's the Wilbur Theater. Have you done that? No, I haven't. I think I'm going to do a live WTF there in January. Yeah, you should do it. You have fun up there. So Okay, so Boston at the Wilbur when? The, the uh, 21st. That's going to be a big show. That's exciting. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I love going to that town. It's but great. I was there before the Red Sox had won their first World Series, you know, after 100 years. Yeah. And the guy says, they said to me, who do you... Uh, who are you a fan of in baseball? I go, I'm not a big baseball fan, but I like the Red Sox and the Yankees. They go, you can't like both. I go, I can do whatever I want. I'm from Philly. <laughs> you know, how can you tell me what the, who to like? <laughs> Did it start a fight? Oh, but you know how angry they get. There's yeah, no vehement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the only place you ever still see street fights. Yeah, it's a you know, there's a there's a there's a type of Gaelic anger there that uh, runs very deep. Yeah, and the guys didn't even go home from work. You see, at one o'clock in the morning, they got the white shirt and a tie on, and they're battling out front. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just uh, yeah. So then they can go home wounded, and maybe maybe their wives won't be mad at them for being right. drunk and abandoning their children as they bleed. They, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, buddy. Well, it's good talking to you. And, I, and you know, de- people should definitely go see you at Gotham and uh, at the Wilbur. And it's uh, you're one of the best, buddy. Thanks, Mark. You too. Good to talk to you. I love you, man. Thanks. I love you too, man. Talk to you later, Dom. Yeah. Okay, so go see Dom. Enjoy your life. I'll let you know how it goes. What it, what, what does that mean? Is that just a general thing? In general, I'll let you know how it goes. Thanks for listening.